you know, as clinicians, we're, we're certainly called upon to give our ideas about anyone's, anyone's conversation. But it's also so important for us not to be judgmental about what we think real conversation should sound like. Because there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of different ways that people have conversations that are very fulfilling. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I am your host, Jeff Steppen. It is December 2021, which means we're rounding up another year of living under the pandemic. So I hope you're all staying safe and doing well. Today on the show, I am happy to welcome Anna Vagan. And many of you will know who she is. She's pretty big in the social cognition space. Well, Anna is back for those of you who have worked with the conversation paths packs before she's back with a updated version of it um for those of you not familiar with her anna vega's been in the social cognition space space for well over 25 years she's a speech pathologist with lots of experience you'll hear a little bit of her bio and during our conversation but this is a wide-ranging talk and there's a lot of resources in here for those of you interested in picking up golden nuggets i certainly have um i use youtube videos a lot in my therapy and, and this is uh, in a program of educational life skills that I work in. But um, I love non-speaking cartoon shorts, those Pixar animations. They're gold for so many different language goals or activities, what have you. And Anna talks a little bit about that. That's part of her uh, product line. She previously uh, published UQ Feelings, so check that out as well. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Anna Vagan. Enjoy. Well, Anna Vagan, thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, I So when you first emailed me, I, I actually thought I knew who you were and I wasn't sure. And, you know, after digging around, I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm like, I remember this is the person who did this thing on UQ Feelings. That's right. Um, like several years ago. And I, I think you were probably one of the uh, influencers in my professional career in terms of using YouTube video clips. Uh, the other person I have to give a shout out to someone who used to work in my district. Um, I don't know if she wants her last name, but I'll just give her Holly. Hello, Holly. Uh, so she was she really um, started the whole thing with me probably around 2015 or 2016. She would show to some of her students, um, the Simon's Cat videos. And do you know those? Absolutely. So I I use those a lot with the kids. Now, my population is is uh, that I work with is different than probably most of the kids you come up with, so that you work with. So m- many of my kids, or most of the kids that I work with, um, I don't work with necessarily on social cognition in the, in the traditional, like Michelle Garcia winner sense. You know, mm-hmm. she's got like those three general categories of kids and I work in educational life skills. So there's a range of students that I have, but some of them fall into that work where uh, the early uh, referencing. But I, what I use it for, if anything, is just general language skills as well. Um, they find them hilarious. Yes. And, and, you know, I do think that, that a good animated video is such a gift 
to us because it's really engaging learning material. Whether you're working on emotions or whether you're working on perspective taking or if you're working just on language. And there are so many videos that are just wonderful to use for narrative language. Um, in fact, a shout out, if I can do a shout out, sure. uh, Asha Mary Ellen Rooney Moreau of Story Grammar Marker fame, who is such a wonderful, brilliant person. And I are doing a presentation at Asha in a couple of weeks. Nice. Well, we, we recorded it and it's about using animated videos to work on mental state verbs and how mental state verbs support the development of discourse and language. Um, because you can, you can use them for so many different things. Okay, just define a mental state verb, just so the audience... Mental state verbs are kind of a new passion of mine in the past year and a half or so. Mental state verbs are the verbs of cognition. So they are the verbs that represent thought processes and internal processes like think, remember, know, understand, notice, recognize, um, miss, hope. Mm. All of those are verbs that students with speech and language delay are often delayed on because they are abstract and internal. Uh, and I think okay. also because so often we simplify our language for these kids. And we're kind of, you know, we, in, in part, we're trying to communicate basically. And so we simplify our language and often that is removing mental state verbs. You know, I, it's funny because I've been influenced by a few of the previous podcast guests uh, on on this on the on the whole um, simplifying things too much, right? Yes. And you know, the question is for our students who have some measure of like an intellectual disability: how do you teach those? How do you teach a concept like that? And are we? Uh, is it a a disservice to not introduce those? So. I guess there's a lot to unpack there, but what would be your uh, shortened, I guess, version of an explanation of how to, how to proceed with that? I absolutely agree with everything you've said about the importance of not sacrificing them. Uh, there have been some interesting studies, although small ends, that have shown that if we as adults and clinicians start using mental state verbs in our language to children, they will start to use them and often use mental state verbs that we haven't been using with them. So that's really magical. Yeah. I had a young adult I was working with and his mom, you know, got on the bandwagon of mental state verbs. And he came in one day and he said, I enjoyed my weekend. Mm. And I was like, wow. And I texted his mom, have you been using enjoy? And she's a very reliable reporter. And she said, no. And so you kind of get this like oozy spread through mental state verbs just as a cognitive increase, a cognitive jump. Yeah, yeah. You know, the difference between having a student say, we went out to dinner last night versus saying we decided to go out to dinner last night. Huge difference as far as linguistic complexity, but also reflecting cognitive wherewithal of, you know, deciding implies there were differences of opinion, there was mm -hmm. some discussion, there was negotiation, and finally, you know, some agreement was reached. So in so many ways, just putting in that mental state verb shifts the whole content yeah. of 
that sentence. They're just magical. I'm just, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by them. Yeah, it, it sounds like a really fascinating presentation. I can't. I, I hope that as I won't be attending ASHA virtually or in person this year. I'm hoping that there's a um, some handouts at least or something for us to get on on the back end. Well, of course, there, most of these are recorded and available for later uh, distribution or right uh, or streaming. Yes, mm. and in fact, ours we had to decide. Some, yes. I think it may be distributed separate from the convention. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. See, right here in the first five minutes, I'm getting some nuggets here, some things some things to think about. You know, I, I was looking at your website today and, and looking at your YouTube channel and I'm writing down all these different videos. Oh, I haven't seen this one before. I haven't seen this animation. Um, and I, I love, I, again, just going back, I think I love non-voiced, you know, the, uh, basically you get to decide what the meaning is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're so rich for all sorts of language activities from, you know, someone who is a non-speaker or you're working on verbs, you're working on sequencing. It really does have everything. And I loved you. I, I saw one video today where you had, um, so you're, I think it's, it, it's tied into your latest uh, product, the conversation paths. Um, is it PAX or PATHS? I forget now. I think it's PAX. It's both. It's the conversation paths pack. Paths packed. <laughs> well, so yeah. So you in one video I saw you, you said, you know, as a break time activity, you can watch one of these videos and then, you know, you watch it through first as is, which is what I always do. And then you go back and you okay, okay, why don't you voice the part? What would this person say or what is that person going to say? And I and um I haven't done that, but what a fun activity. I hadn't thought about doing something like that. I call that conversation in real time. And I have to say students love doing it because it's, it's so much fun and it's so engaging, but it allows practice on so many aspects of conversation because you have to get your timing right. But you also have to think on your feet and be able to pivot based on what your partner says for the other character. Mm-hmm. And you also have to interpret the nonverbal information from the video and the affect. So I had a group doing this and the character was annoyed, but the student did furious Mm. in his intonation. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, do you think the character is that upset? It's not that big a feeling. So you have to tamp it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the conversation real time is, is just a hoot to do. And, most interesting to me is as I was working on conversation through this format, I started getting emails from clinicians working with populations I hadn't considered, including gender affirming voice therapy and accent modification ah. uh, and, and aphasia. And uh, I had a meeting, a Zoom meeting with CoreSpan that is a, you know, clinicians who work in accent modification. And they were saying, this is exactly what so many of our clients need to work on is that you have to think on your feet. Yeah. You can't predict what the other person will say. You can't control it mm-hmm. because of that organic nature of true conversation. Yeah. 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 Now, you know, one, one of the things that came up, I guess, also with um, doing that real time uh, analysis is what you're you talking about the, the, uh, the clients who overstated the, the intensity what about what happens when someone because we just work with such a heterogeneous population there's social cognition it's all over the place 
you know, what about our clients who completely miss the cues altogether uh, and don't see something significant that happened? Uh, how do you how do you sort of pause and and get them to see something that they didn't see the first time? Well, what I recommend before you start doing the conversation in real time is not just watching the animation, but really working through it so that you know that there's understanding of the feelings and the thoughts behind the feelings. You understand um, what happens between the characters, what problems are solved, what uh, difficulties or challenges might come up for the character. So you first want to have understanding of the storyline. Uh, and so, but there's nothing wrong with having multiple takes. Yeah. And part of it is that everyone's kind of cracking up and everyone's giving everybody feedback. Um, and you can try it again. And I always recommend recording it because students love to listen to how it ends up. Uh, and, and that generates, again, that spontaneous conversation between our students where we can just sit back and give them space in which they can have interesting, fun conversation because yeah. so few of them really don't have that opportunity with peers because for whatever reason, they're not seen as desirable conversation partners. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't surprising that many of their conversation skills need a little polishing and a little practice. Um, one more point on the UQ feelings I want to ask you is, how do you find these videos on YouTube? What is your source? <laughs> Uh, well, I watch hundreds of, of animated videos, uh, but I do have some favorites that I follow. The Ringling School of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida, that I had the incredible fun of visiting, is a school for animators, one of, one of the best in the country. And a lot of their students make beautiful, beautiful animations. They spend a lot of junior year making the storyline, and then a lot of senior year is spent executing the production. And so these videos that are like three minutes can take months and months and months Mm. to make. Um, So I, I, there are some that I follow my most recent, and I don't know if you've watched these yet is the Maka and Roni series. I saw you reference it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, From Kyung Min Woo, um, who's a wonderful animator and storyteller who has the most adorable, lovable, likable characters. Mm. And the degree, there's no dialogue, but the degree that he communicates affect and emotion in characters without eyebrows, you know, is just so lovely. They had, he had three that he came out with a couple of years ago, and I've used them a lot. And I was hoping for more. And then a couple of months ago, I checked and there's like 20 new ones. Oh, nice. And this one, Maka and Roni turn off the air conditioning is gold. Mm-hmm. It is so fabulous. Parents love it. Adults just love it. And I was working with a dad and his daughter using it. And the dad is like, was this made just for, you know, students with language problems? I'm like, no, these animators are making them for entertainment. And they love hearing that they're being used, you know, therapeutically. Yeah. They never dreamed that. <laughs> That's awesome. That was great. It's a whole treasure trove. And yeah, I, you know, when the pandemic, when we all shut down and we were all doing Zoom sessions, I, I, I did this thing. I had like my Simon's Cat video of the week and the kids loved it so much. Um, we got through all these. And at the end of the year, I came, I came up with like an award show 
like the Simon's oh, cat <laughs> and let's all vote for our favorites and I would you know have this like slick animation that I used you know like to introduce each one as like an Academy Awards kind of thing <laughs> they got such a kick out of it but now I got a whole new thing like I there's a whole you know whole new set of artists and it's great I can't wait to use them well and setting up the awards and having students vote also allowed them to work on opinions yeah which for many of our students, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily asked their opinion very often mm-hmm. or they have decision paralysis. I can't decide. Or they really don't offer their opinion until they get a sense of everybody else's opinion because they don't want to be judged wrong or, you know, foolish for what, they, what they're saying. So they hold back until everyone else has voted and they're like, oh, yeah, I like Brussels sprouts too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> sure. They're the worst vegetable on the planet. What he said. <laughs> right. So our opinion working is really important. And part of what makes an interesting conversation is opinions, not right. details. You know, details are great, but I want to hear what you think about what you saw and what you experienced. Um, I, I wanted to just back up for a second and just ask, so you've been in, in this, in the social cognition space for roughly what, 25 years? That's a that's a good that's a good number. Okay, I, and one of the things I've I usually start with, but I've always wondered. I just want to know how did you find your niche? Like what 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 was the path? Was it immediate? Did you kind of come to it haphazardly? You know, it's always an interesting journey that we take. I think, um, and actually, uh, you know, I started as kind of a generalized SLP. You know, and I and I ended up uh, working for a private school that had kids with special needs. Um, but then I kind of veered over into craniofacial and I was the assistant director of a craniofacial panel. And my dissertation actually was on mother child interaction in children with cleft lip and palate. Mm. So I was kind of far away, although, you know, I had done a lot of work in pragmatics already and then pragmatics, you know, started morphing into looking at all of these other topics and part of um, the, my work when I got my doctorate was also in attachment theory. And so already really starting to think a lot about relationships and the genesis of relationships and how relationships can, you know, not work out always and how we can as clinicians facilitate the development of better relationships. And so that's kind of how I ended up going into this. Um, you know, I think we kind of end up where we're supposed to be. And yeah, uh, I love, I, I just love what I do. I love the students and families I work with. I love presenting. I love making materials. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's the, the field has been really, really very generous to me. That's great to hear. So I wanted to shift. Let's talk about your, the conversation PAX paths. They get the, the order right. Pack. Yeah. Well, it's abbreviated CPEF, which I think is a lot easier to say. Oh, CPEF, sure. (laughs) So um, I imagined I was looking, and I don't have the product in front of me, but I was looking at your video presentation going over the how to use it. So essentially for, obviously, uh, we have listeners, we can't have, we don't have viewers here, but it's a, it's a PowerPoint presentation that's, um, that is a bunch of templates and it's modifiable. So Mm -hmm. what it is, it's sort of like a, actually reminds me of, about seven years ago, I had someone on. What was it? It was a writing program. It's sort of like it had a very, as a, as like a, a very elaborate graphic organizer almost. 
Um, and so it sounds like the this product is sort of like the same kind of notion. It's a visually organized, broken down uh, you, from simple to more complex conversations. Uh, the meat of which is what happens in the middle. So it's not just the the hello and goodbyes, but it's the it's the interjections. I think there's the a, a, a pop. Was that the pop right ins? Pop ins, yeah. So you've got the pop ins, like little exclamations. Oh, that's cool. Um, and what you're doing is you're assigning roles. So presumably you're going to have a, a group of kids um, or adults, young adults perhaps, and you're going to assign roles. You know, you'll you're going to put their name next to like a green or the blue, and they'll know when to jump in. And you might have a little practice and more of a structured. You get them going. Here's how you might start, and then you then you'll sort of give them a prompt. Okay, here's you're labeling this part of the conversation, the pop-ins, and you're going to come up with something to say for this. So it, it sounds very, and you're, you're, of course, you're building on a previous um, iteration of this, correct? Yes. So uh, explain for you how this, how this new iteration builds on what you've already done. Well, you've done a really wonderful way, you know, job of describing it. So thank you. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> initially, initially, I put the paths out right when we went into shelter in place. Yeah. as a way of working on conversation. The idea being it's a semi-structured framework to work on something that is so organic that's really hard to contain. And so there are various conversational frames like the pop-ins, like answers, like questions, like comments. And what I found, and, and so as you're saying, students are assigned a particular color that takes them through the path. And what I you truly believed in what clinicians started very quickly writing me emails about is that it helped them identify frames that students just weren't using. And so there might be one student who never made a comment and they're like, Oh, I never realized that this student never makes a comment or this student always asks the same question. There's no diversity in the question forms. And so the paths give students opportunity to practice and explore conversational frames that they're not perhaps so familiar with. Mm. But I think what really is helpful to students is that because it's a visual display of the path, they know exactly what it will be required of them. They know how many times they're going to have to come in. They know where the end is. So it's very clear what the expectation is. And I think when we're working with students on areas that are challenging, like for any of us, you know, I want to know exactly what I need to do if it's something that's going to be tricky for me. Yeah. I want to know, you know, when am I going to be finished? <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking, um, and I'm sure that the a similar problem uh, challenge could come up in this situation where you go through the more structured iteration of this or say, okay, now let's go ahead and let's talk about, so uh, Bill had a birthday last week. Maybe we can make that the basis for our next conversation. Here are the roles. And then you've got the guy who says, I don't know what to say. Like stuck, even though they're, they have a choice of, of which type of question to lead with, but they're really not sure. It's always, you know, how much scaffolding, how much support can we give? And then you know, they, I, you always have those kids who are just like, they're so worried about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. They just cannot get, they can't get that initiation. It's that, it's that spontaneity, you know, there, mm -hmm. and many of our kiddos are so used to being helped too much <clears throat> and cued way too much. 
And so there's a couple of ways, I think, to address that. One of them is that on the paths, so on a particular path, it's a PowerPoint slide. So it's, you know, PowerPoint slide. And at the bottom, there are cue cards. So you're saying a student who doesn't know what question to ask. So at the bottom of the slide, there's a box that has a whole bunch of question starting words. So for some students, I might just need to circle that box with the mouse and they'll think of one. Or for another student, I might highlight what or where or some question that I think they would feel more comfortable asking. Mm, Because if we can cue without our language, it's much better. Yeah. Because we don't know what students want to ask. You know, I have this and it's an example in uh, the PowerPoint on assessment and data tracking which is in CPEF. So CPEF has a lot of different PowerPoint slide decks. And some of them have narration for me as I'm taking people through these ideas. And so I have this great video of a student. We go through the path one time and she does really, really well. We switch the colors. So she has to do the other, you know, the other way through the path. And it took her 33 seconds to come up with a question mm. for me because she had said, something about her brother going to camp and she's used to getting questions from adults and I had a pop in. And so I said, great. And so now she had to come up with a question. 33 seconds later, she says, when your son was little, did he go away to sleep away camps? Wow. So she had an amazing question, not just linguistically, but that reflected that she remembered that I have a son she recognizes that now he's a young adult, therefore he doesn't go to camp anymore, but maybe yeah. he did when he was little. She came up with this gorgeous question. I would have never prompted her to ask that question. I would have gone with a simpler question. Yeah. And so many of our students, when we give them silence, they can show us what they know and mm-hmm. what they have internally. They just need silence in which to process and formulate and express. And what was so great also, and it's in the presentation showing that we can use CPEV for data collection, is that she listened to the recording and she said, that took me a really long time. I want to get faster at asking questions. And I'm like, yeah. So I've got buy-in. And it was, it was such, it was so effective Uh, both for me as a clinician, but also for her to understand in a safe environment the types of things that were hard for her. And also, you know, I I certainly said that was such a wonderful question you asked me. How old was this person? Uh, She is in seventh grade. Seventh grade. Wow, that's amazing. That is quite amazing to hear. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so much, like you said, so much to unpack in that sentence about her ability to to really go deep mm-hmm. um i one of the things i i liked about when I, so when i saw the cpap program i was like you know what i of course that i was like yeah but you know what's really tough is coming up with goals and of course you already answered that with like oh she's got something and i I, don't know, I thought it was really cool because i think you know working in the schools every slp can agree one of the toughest things and it's something after all these i'm still working on is coming up with goals and I like that you have these rubrics that you, you can use 
to really track, like you were mentioning, you can, you know, you're going, how many times will someone spontaneously comments? You know, so again, we're, we're going beyond the hello and the goodbyes with most, most kids, you know, we, that's not the meat of what we're working on. Right. Um, but yeah, but like you were saying, like how many times does a person have, have some type of reciprocity that they're not used to, uh, not used to doing or asking follow-up questions? So I think that's, a, that's quite a feat to have that in there. The rubrics were, were a lot of work. Uh, and, and really what happened to this program is it kind of got bigger and bigger because I thought the rubrics were really, really important just for what you're saying. It's really difficult to, first of all, evaluate conversation and then write goals about it because true conversation is organic and spontaneous. And therefore it's, you know, having a subtest that can measure it is really antithetical to what true conversation is. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the other thing that's so interesting about rubrics and goal writing is the importance of us to gather information from a lot of sources and to also write goals, especially as students get older, that really take into account what do they want? What are they looking for? You know, as clinicians, we're, we're certainly called upon to give our ideas about anyone's anyone's conversation. But it's also so important for us not to be judgmental about what we think real conversation should sound like. Because there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of different ways that people have conversations that are very fulfilling. Yes, that's true. Yeah. It may not follow the rules of turn taking, for example, you know, that we think are important. So if there is a group of autistic adults uh, and they're having a support meeting and they're all having conversation. They are all talking at the same time. They are all emotionally connected. They are having a wonderful time. They are experiencing what true conversation is about for us to come in and say, excuse me, turn taking, turn taking is important and I'm not seeing it here, but out. You know, that's not my role in that situation. Our job is to help everyone find what makes them happy and what makes them feel content in their relationships. Yeah, and this is a really, I think, interesting uh, area that just, I think, really over the last years really started to 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 mushroom is the, the idea of how neurodiversity fits in with the overall project of social cognition and our roles, our roles as therapists. It is a, it is a tricky one because I've seen, as I'm sure you have too, the conversations can become quite heated about these things. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we have to find what works for these kids and young adults. While, you know, I, I was, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had. The, so the last most recent, uh, episode I published also in the space of social cognition. And I like the idea of really saying, you know, we're, we're going to work on this skill. How you use that skill is really up to you. It's really about what fits in with your life, not mine. But here are some things we observed and, you know, we can choose to work on them. We can choose, we can choose to work on it and do what you, what you need to do with it. Uh, it's not about about necessarily what I want. And, um, yeah, and I, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot more conversations in that space. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think we are in a time in our field where the way we look at individuals, whether they're students or young adults or seniors, really is shifting from kind of an egocentric perspective of I know yeah. how you should be living. Uh, and so I think there are some very interesting conversations to be had about this. And I think people do get very emotional about it and people have very strong feelings and we just have to do the best we can, you know, in the moment and with what we know and what we understand and recognize that our field is constantly shifting and changing. It is. And And, yeah. And what I I said, I'll say what I said in the last episode, we're all a work in progress. We're all a work in progress and our field is a work in progress also. You know, it's 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 changed just in the time that I've been involved in it. There there have been so many shifts. Yeah, uh, paradigms change, and that that's what makes it exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to speaking of last week's um, episode, I wanted to uh, bring up. I'm actually thinking of uh, of a student I had ten years ago. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of two students actually, but with the same one not mine, one was mine. Uh, coming to a social, uh, social quote unquote social skills group, um, less than motivated, uh, questioning, why do I have to be here? Um, this isn't for me. I'm sure you've seen that many times in your practice. I'm sure you talked to, (laughs) this is nothing new. I'm just curious, what do you do to get someone's, to get that buy-in when they're not, when they walk through that door and they're like, no, not for me. Well, I'm a big believer in using games as material that engages students. Uh, and certainly I you know, work primarily on social cognition, but I also work on obviously conversation and narrative language. Uh, there are so many fabulous games to play right now uh, that support students in taking risk and identifying and being more comfortable with uncomfortable feelings. Um, and, uh, something that you know I would love to talk about for a few minutes are therapeutically applied role-playing games. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, GameToGrow.org up in Seattle is a fabulous organization. I've been involved with them for about 10 years. And they recently, a couple of years ago, started developing a game called Critical Core, which is a therapeutically applied role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not a video game. The most famous role-playing game, of course, is D&D, Dungeons & Dragons. And so this is a game that is based in a floor-time model and works on five core capacities via role-playing games where you have a campaign and a quest and characters that you develop. And I have become a game master, which I never thought I would. And the growth that I've seen from students, I'm actually presenting this um, both at CASH, at California Speech and Hearing Association, in March. And then I'm doing a video continuing education recording of it also. Um, it is such a powerful way to work that is often very engaging for those students who are a little bit older, who've seen it all. And they're like, I know, I know that. I do that. I know all the zones. I'm always green. I know all the super thin people. I, I you know, they, they, they've seen everything. Yeah. And show me something new. And so when I introduce Critical Core, they are, they're on it. Uh, and it allows that 
practice in a safe environment of my character can explore being more collaborative. My character can explore dialing back my impulsivity. And I have to, I was a beta tester for them. And, and I have to say, it's really a magical way to work. I was thinking, because years ago, I took improv classes. Mm-hmm. And again, it sounds like a way to explore being in a different space to open up in ways you never would have done in your, in your real self. It, it's really brilliant. And what I found, because I was doing the beta testing during COVID, yeah. So I was having Zoom sessions and, you know, the kids are all at home. All the families are stuck in their house all day. And it was like we went on vacation. Mm. And I think what I found, and, and the students were saying this also, is at the end, it was like they had all changed. And yeah. they knew each other in different ways. And their skill set had, had grown dramatically. That's amazing. So yeah, they're they're accessing pieces of them that they normally would not have had access to. I wanted to ask you if there are any other sources for social cognition in general that you think fly under the radar that need more attention that people are not paying attention to. I mean, you've already given me some awesome ideas in terms of the YouTube stuff, the role-playing games, uh, authors or speakers or books that things that we the general public or the general SOP might not be aware of? Well, you know, I really admire the work of Mary Ellen Rooney Moreau of Story Grammar Marker. Um, I think she is brilliant. And again, she has a lot of visual supports in her program, which really helps map it out for students. Uh, So I, I think, I think she's really, really just makes materials like you can't believe she, she's, always creating something new. Um, and so I think, I think her work parents really like it. And I think clinicians love using it also. Um, I do like for working on emotions, mm-hmm. uh, the imagination press series of books. They're kind of workbooks. Okay. So there's one for what to do when your temper flares. There's one for kind of anxiety. There's one for OCD. Uh, for when, you know, if you think things aren't fair, because mm. that often is a theme for our students. And so they're very, it's like a workbook. They're short little chapters. They encourage students to do a lot of drawing. Uh, and I often recommend them to parents because it's, it's, a, it's a family-friendly uh, material because the chapters are super short and, and it's so well-written, you know, helping our students identify cool thoughts that will make uncomfortable feelings lessen instead of hot thoughts that just crank everything up. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really, really nice material too. I'll have to check that out too. That's, that's great. You know, as you were saying that I was actually thinking, wait, did, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm conflating, but I was just listening to a podcast the other day. This, um, the psychologist, Paul Bloom has a new book out. I, I don't know if this is at the core of what he was saying. It's kind of like about what makes a good life and happiness. And he was mentioning how the fact that when people are put on the spot and said, how many words can you come up with that are syn- synonymous with happy versus or, or negative thoughts? How many negative emotions versus happy? And invariably, we all come up with negative, many, many more negative labels. You know, anger, is dissatisfied, sad. And I don't know if it was a time to experiment or, one of, or, or, or not, but um, it's just amazing that how we tend to dwell and can go so quickly down the, 
that path of negativity. Uh, And I, and I think to myself, I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting to know, like if our students who start to struggle with social link, social cognition, what their internal, uh, if their internal vocabulary is, is, is heavier on the negative side versus, you know, the positive, do they have, do they tend to have more representation on the negative side? I've always wondered that. Any thoughts there? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting research question. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be really fascinating to look at. Uh, you know, Simon Baron Cohn has, um, in his work, he has a developmental listing, a sequence of kind of what ages children acquire certain emotional labels, which is very interesting. Mm. Uh, but circling back to the, ha- the whole idea of happy, yeah. Peter Mullen. Uh, you know, with his book, Autism as Context Blindness, uh, his whole new program is called HAPPY. And I forget what it stands for, but he has now really focused in on happiness is the goal. And for individuals with autism, happy is the goal. We want, you know, individuals happy as adults. And it yeah. will mean different things for different people. And again, it's back to that non-judgmental appreciation of the range of happiness. Okay, Anna, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. Don't forget to check out the links to all the items mentioned in today's show, the YouTube videos, Anna's uh, products for UQ Feelings, and conversation paths packs check that out and his website is socialtime.org one word socialtime.org okay just a few more housekeeping issues here for those of you who enjoy the podcast please go ahead and leave it a review wherever you listen to podcasts that would be much appreciated don't forget to check out my webpage conversationsandspeech.com for updates on the show you can sign up for a very occasional uh, newsletter, which I really don't put out very often. And of course, they are, there are blog posts, believe it or not. If you'd like to get a hold of me, Jeff, at conversationsandspeech.com, I read all my email, good, bad, the ugly. Send show suggestions, cat memes, whatever you'd like. And thank you all for listening. As always, stay safe, and here's to a happy 2022.